friends, and welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you on board. Greg Kokel here, and uh, this is uh, a rainy day in Southern California. It's been a rainy week. In fact, you know, when it, when I grew up in Chicago, you had to have like two feet of snow before they closed the schools. In Southern California, you have two millimeters of rain and they closed the schools. What a bunch of wusses. What's up with that? You know, I can't believe it. But the schools are closed and things are shut down because it's really wet outside. Now, I think in some places there have been some flash floods, and there actually has been quite a bit of rain. But everybody's driving around, doing their thing. I don't know why the schools can't be open. any event, it's nice to get the rain, and I drove through uh, Malibu Canyon, from the 101 freeway in Simi, in, uh, not Simi, but Conejo Valley, where I live, and Malibu Canyon exits right there by Pepperdine's beautiful. I saw two deer this morning out in the field getting rained on. Uh, and, uh, of course, there's always that liability of the rock sliding there, and they did a little bit, but it didn't impede traffic and driving along the freeway. And uh, nice to see Southern California green for a short period of time. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, once the spring rains, such as they are, and we will not see another drop until, what, November? So we won't have to worry about, you know, plans. And when I was growing up in Chicago, it's like, what are you doing this weekend? Well, if it doesn't rain, we're going to do this, that, or the other thing. People would plan weddings outdoors. I can't imagine that now, because it's so easy to get rain done in the Midwest in the spring and summer. Any event, it's nice to have the rain. I want to bring you up to date on our events. We are starting our uh, season, once again, our spring season of reality. We've had three of those in the fall and uh, sold out. And we're doing the same thing now. Right now, Dallas, which uh, is in three weeks, or is it two and a half weeks? The 23rd and 24th of Feb. Two and a half weeks. We've already sold out the main auditorium. Uh, almost 2,500. There's still 380 seats left in overflow. If you haven't got your tickets, get your tickets. The overflow is still great. And you can interact with everybody, even in the main auditorium. You know how it works. You got a big auditorium, thousands of people there, and some way out there in the stage, this little bitty guy or gal singing or teaching or doing their thing. And so what do you do? You look at the screen, which is great. And uh, so if you're in the overflow, um, you might save a few bucks. Uh, you still get the screens, which is the cool part. I think the worship isn't quite as intense when there's 400 people as opposed to 2,400 people. But nevertheless, please go to realityapologetics.com if you haven't gotten your tickets yet. Incidentally, this is a great event. It's on identity. Okay. And Lanesh Garrison is going to be there, Christopher Yuan, Tripp and Megan Allman, Sean McDowell, and the whole raft of Stand a Reason regulars on our team. And uh, this is the event, by the way, for reality that we do live stream. So if you go to realityapologetics.com, you can sign up for a live stream for yourself, for your family, for your youth group, uh, for your Bible study group, for your church. Now, there are different price breaks based on the size of your group but it's doable, all right? And if you can't make it, and one reason you might not be able to make it is because it's sold out, then uh, this is the best option. And if you're 
not in striking distance, of course, this is the place. And some of you, you know, you've been in parts of the country where you just can't travel to our six different events, and uh, this is a way to enjoy it and get the teaching, the great teaching, even though you're not in situ, you're not there rubbing shoulders with the rest of us, which is the best. Nevertheless, you'll get the teaching, and it's really nicely done. So realityapologetics.com is the information not only for the Dallas event coming up February 23rd and 24th, but also for Philly, March 22nd, 23rd. And we got, you know, we're pushing 1,000 already, 868. We can only have 1,100 in the main auditorium, 200 in the overflow. So that's going fast, and that's, what, six weeks away. Augusta... Early bird registration ends February 23rd. That's April 19th and 20th. That will be the last of our season uh, for uh, this series of reality conferences. And uh, you can get all that information at realityapologetics.com. Incidentally, I just realized, and I want to say it right now so I don't forget, Amy, you are doing a special event tomorrow online. So Wednesday, February 7th, um... Now, that's tomorrow to me, but many of you obviously will be getting this first thing tomorrow. Is that how it goes out? All right. Facebook page, live Q&A, 1 p.m. Pacific. All right. And the same day, Mr. Tim Barnett, a.k.a. the lovable Mr. B with his funky hats, he will be doing a live stream Q&A for strategic partners at the Strategic Partners Facebook group, also tomorrow at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So he's on the East Coast, so that's going to be 8 o'clock at night. That's just before bedtime for him. But those are two events that are happening on Wednesday, February 7th. You can have an interaction, a live interaction with two of our wonderful people, Amy Hall and Tim Barnett. Alan Schleeman's going to be speaking on the weekend in Cumming, Georgia, Saturday, February 10. It's going to be the—he'll be a presenter there at the Human Identity and Sexuality Conference at Grace Fellowship in Cumming, Georgia. And uh, I'm going to be speaking the following week at the Fearless Faith Conference in Dayton, Ohio, Friday and Saturday. That's going to be great. Frank Turk will be there. Elisa Childers will be there. Uh, I'll be there. Uh, I'm not sure all the other folks, but those are some that I recall right away. That's going to be a great event in Ohio. So that's mid-country. We don't do a lot of stuff mid-country, but we'll be in Ohio. Uh, that's, let's see, Dayton, Ohio, Fearless Faith Conference, February 16 and 17. Um, Alan, Robbie, John, and I will all be at the Desert Apologetics Anchored Conference in Indian Wells, California. That's uh, Palm Springs area. That'll be Thursday through Saturday. The end of the month, February 29th through March 2nd. And by the way, we won't be alone. Uh, Alisa Childers will be there, I th- I'm pretty sure. And I think Natasha Crane. And uh, I'm just going off the top of my head, my recollections. Lynez Garrison will be there. And there's more. It's, it's quite a lineup. And so if you're in the Southern California area or Arizona, it's, Robbie's going to be driving in from Phoenix to do his presentation. So uh, you can do that on February 29th through March 2nd. That would be Friday, Saturday. I think it starts Thursday, 29th, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. I'll be presenting on Saturday afternoon. Tim Barnett is speaking at Broadway Christian Church in Mattoon, Illinois, on Saturday, March 2nd. So he's also going to be... Uh, 
flyover states there. And all of these details are available um, at uh, www.str.org slash events. So if you go to our website and look up events, you get all the skinny on all of those details. Okay, so we got uh, Jason's on board from San Francisco. I was going to do a lot of open mic calls today. I had some in the queue and I want to get to, but let's get to Jason first. So, Jason, welcome to Stand to Reason. Glad you called. Thank you, Greg. You're welcome. Uh, I have a I have a question about why it is that believers will not sin in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are you know two primary views on this issue, and both of them rely on God doing something to human beings to ensure that we don't sin. But on one view, He just removes our sinful nature, and we are theoretically capable of choosing sin in heaven, but it's just ensure that as a matter of fact, we never will. Whereas on the other view, God not only removes our sinful nature, but he infuses us with his moral perfection, like that divine attribute. Mm-hmm. And I know that you take that latter view, that God shares with us of his moral perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to believe that view of the two due to <laughs> theological and apologetic problems with the other view. So, but I'm curious, yeah, why, why, why do you believe, and here's my sticking point, why do you think that the divine property of moral perfection is a communicable property? Okay. Like some properties are clearly communicable right. and others are not. So yes. this one here is just, I'm not sure why we would think it one way or the other. Okay, well, if if God does change our natures to be morally perfect, then ipso facto, moral perfection, a divine quality, is communicable, because that's what's happening there. So that's the nature of one of the options, that God communicates that attribute to people in the resurrection, all right? The other view, as you pointed out, and um, Clay Jones takes this other view. I mean, I've been with him when he's taught on it, and, and that is that we will not have an inclination to sin. I guess, and I don't want to misrepresent him, but it's something of this sort. We will not have an inclination to sin like we do now in our fallen nature, but we will be more like Adam. Okay? Now, the way you—that that is, he's morally innocent, no fallen nature, no inclination. Now, the way you put it, though, and just so I understand you correctly, you said that God, in both cases— we will not be able to sin, but in both cases, God does something, but he does one of two things. Okay, so I'm asking the question, what is it that—well, I think the way you put it is, God does something to ensure that there will be no sin in heaven. So, right. So if it's the first option, what is it that ensures that a human being without a sin nature, um, in the, as in the case of Adam will not use his moral freedom that would still be intact on that view, the moral freedom in this case being the ability to sin or not to sin, the ability to do otherwise kind of thing. Um, what is it that's, that God does to secure um, the fact that we will never use that moral freedom to sin on the first option? Yeah, two different areas. And one, they'll say that not only that we're not actually returning to just Adam's state, but it is, you know, we'll be glorified, so it'll be a higher state. But I know Clay Jones really banks on the idea that 
part of why we will not choose to sin is because we have seen how disastrous yeah. the effects are of sin. And so basically it's like now, as Paul says, I, I want to do good, but there's this evil present. And so they, once that sinful nature is removed from us, we will always be able to choose the good. Um, kind of like I heard J.P. Moreland say, which I think he adopts this view. He said, I could, he said, I could choose to go eat my dog's feces. <laughs> like that's theoretically possible. He goes, but I would never choose to do that. And, and in heaven, I, that was his analogy. It's like theoretically sin would still be possible because we would still have moral freedom. But without the sinful nature there to ever incline us toward that and knowing how disgusting sin is, nobody will ever choose yeah. it. So that at the end of the day, you end up with sinlessness either way. Um, you know, but sin is still theoretically possible. And that's why I, I think the view that you hold is preferable. Um, but if I were to defend it, you know, somebody challenged me and said, well, but why do you think that that property is something God could communicate? Like, you know, clearly God can't communicate his omniscience to us, but he can communicate his immortality to us. So what reasons are there to think that, you know, apart from theological advantages of that view for why we won't sin, what reasons are there to think that the divine property of moral perfection is something God could give to us? And then that invites a second question, if he could give this to us, why didn't he do so from the very beginning? Okay, uh, yeah, two separate questions. And actually, I think the first question, the burden of proof is going in the wrong direction, okay? Um, Because if it seems like there is no um, good reason in the nature of the thing itself, that the attribute could not be communicated, then I don't know why I have to argue that um, it—well, I want to be careful I say this—that the default position isn't that it's not communicated unless I can give a good reason that it is communicated, okay? Obviously, omniscience is not something that a finite creature can participate in, but immortality is something is something like that. It seems to me that um, um, uh, moral moral purity, moral uh, um, essential. I'm not, I'm trying to think about how to char- how to characterize the attribute now, uh, but the but that kind of thing, God's essential goodness. Uh, his moral perfection, there it is, is is not the kind of thing that can't be communicated. So I don't have a reason to doubt it. And I do have um, a strong characterization, and we all share this understanding, that there will not be he- sin in heaven. So I don't see why I would, I would have to have—that I, 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 I'm not entitled to that as a legitimate option, okay? Because it's certainly possible— so why not? Now, I, uh, my sense—I could be wrong on this, and I haven't talked to JP about this. In fact, I was supposed to interview him today, but we had a mess up in schedule so uh, on another issue. But, uh, but, and I'm not sure where Clay is on this, but I, I have heard his characterization. And in the way he's put it, his illustration is, look it, um, I wouldn't stick myself in the eye with a stick right now, because that'd be stupid. And so in the same way, based on what I know, uh, as you characterized— I wouldn't sin in heaven because that would be stupid. Okay, now to me, I understand his point, but that is not nearly a robust enough assurance for me regarding heaven. Okay, <clears throat> that I know better, and since I've fallen, I'm not fallen, 
and I'm glorified. Now, I'm not sure what glorification, the difference it's going to make to my will. I know what it makes, the difference it makes to my body. Um, but I, I, you know, to me, part of the glorification package is moral perfection. But on this alternate view, moral perfection is not part of glorification, but you suggested glorification does something to um, strengthen our, our our moral capabilities so that we won't sin. I'm not sure what to call that. I don't know why we shouldn't just call that moral perfection, except for one reason. Because, and this is not surprising if this is what's driving JP and, I think, um, Clay, and that is moral freedom, or at least their understanding of moral freedom. <clears throat> now, it's interesting that I've, I've, over the years, in being under J.P.'s teaching and stuff, he's a very strong advocate of uh, libertarian freedom. And uh, over the years, though, he has talked about different aspects of freedom. And one aspect of freedom is not just the, in the strict libertarian sense, fulfilling the CDO condition, like could have done otherwise. So freedom means not just by my agency, I do what I want. That would be a, a lesser standard. That would be... That, but rather, the CDO condition is I can do what I want, or I could have actually done otherwise, you know. So I think that they want to sustain a, this this sense of I they could have done otherwise, but I won't choose to. I could do otherwise, but I won't choose to. Right. In order to maintain a robust sense of moral freedom, but at other times, when he's talked about moral about freedom. He said, freedom is sometimes the ability to do something that you learn to do that had you not invested in developing the skill, you wouldn't be free to do. So um, I don't have the freedom to play the piano because <laughs> I never learned. But a person who put the time in to practice, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and all of that on infinitum, now they can do this wonderful stuff. They have a freedom to accomplish something different. So in that sense, the freedom to do the good is still a a, um, a bona fide freedom. And that's that's where I see it. The Scripture says, when we see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Now, I guess that kind of leaves some room for what does he mean by that? But uh, it, it it is not a stretch for us to understand that statement as entailing his moral nature, his moral perfections that we, we get. Now, will we have the freedom to sin? No, that's not bad. That's good. We will have the same freedom that God has, right. the freedom not to sin, and that is a much more that's a much you know richer sense of freedom right so right. if it uh, so i'm with you i mean if it communicates if there is a communicable quality of god moral perfection i'm there i want that and frankly if it's a jump ball between the options <clears throat> the rationale i i'm, I'm going to go for the one i like uh but i don't i actually don't think it's a jump ball i i i think that these are kind of like well i wouldn't stick my stick in the uh, stick myself in the eye with a stick it, you know i i get his point i just it's just not compelling to me why don't we just say no we will be like him we will be glorified and glorify excuse me glorification entails 
moral perfection. And I mean, classically, it's been characterized as uh, non posse bicari. It is not possible to sin. So we start out posse bicari, Adam, it's possible to sin. Then it's non posse non bicari. That means it's not possible not to sin in the fallen state. And then it's going to be uh, non posse bicari. We were able to sin in the first case. Now we can't right. not sin, and now we're not going to be able to sin. And that's the classic way of putting it. And uh, even if I get my Latin terms mixed up a little bit, you guys, you get the point. <laughs> okay. Because yeah. um, so, that's my Latin, along with etu brute. All right? That covers <laughs> the basis for me. Or tempus fugit. My dad used to say, tempus is fidgeting. You know, time is flying. Anyway, the, um, the, the and, and I just, I think that there's a, there's a, a certain kind of, um, what, what, what am I looking for? Kind of balanced there. There's a there's an elegance to that, and I think it's certainly um, uh, you could conclude that from the scriptures that talk about that. And it yeah. just strikes me that God attributing that quality to us, communicating His moral perfection to us, is a lot simpler. If we're just going with a kind of a parsimony here and, and right. an Occam's razor, it just easier than saying, well, I'll still be able to sin, but I won't choose to because I don't want to stick myself in the eye with a stick because that's dumb. And I see all this right. other stuff. I have absolutely no confidence in myself. Now, maybe I'm just reflecting on my fallenness here, which I wouldn't have, but I, I have no confidence that that's robust enough to keep me safe in heaven, much less the the, the multitude that will be sharing heaven with me. And so, I mean, I don't, uh, uh, I don't know. I, well, speaking of the multitude who are sharing heaven, that multitude would include not just humans, but we also have the angels. So how would you, because if, if God has to infuse us with his attribute of moral perfection to ensure that we don't sin in heaven, what about the angels? Yeah, well, we don't know I mean, what their circumstances are. We know what it think used that God to be. God will do something similar because I mean they've rebelled at least. I mean, if Michael Heiser's right, three right. if not four more times right. that they have rebelled over the years. Correct. Of di- different rebellions, so you know they they saw how bad things were. They've seen the consequences, and yet still more sin. So would something comparable have to be done to the angels to ensure that there is literally no sin in heaven among any of God's? creation? Well, for one, this is really speculative, and I haven't seen Heiser's right. treatment of this, God bless his soul, which, actually, you don't have to pray that anymore. <laughs> God is blessing his dear soul right now. But he, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he, he, I don't know how he cashes all that out, and I've only done a, a kind of a cursory read of his book, um, The Hidden Realm. Unseen Realm. Unseen Realm. There you go. But, uh, but what's interesting from your comment, though, is it does raise another issue. If there have been multiple falls, and I don't know what the evidence of it, then that shows that just knowing what happened in the first fall isn't enough from dissuading people who are capable of rebelling right. again from doing so. So that actually weakens that argument, it strikes yeah. me. I don't know the status of the rest of the angels. Maybe they, maybe as a reward for their non-rebellion, then God will change their natures. We know almost nothing about angels. I mean, compared to the big story and all the other details of theology right. and human, right. whatever. And I mean, we could probably know more than than we do know because there's more revealed, and this is part of Heiser's project. 
<clears throat> but uh, I don't know. I can't answer that. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I not just like the idea of the safety of God's moral perfection, but uh, I think that that is a that is a, that is a um, a grander glorification. Yeah, than, I agree. You know, I, I don't. Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but it's it just. And and I think this is going to be like in Thai they say DT suit, which means exact the best. It's good, the best. DT suit, man. And that's what it's gonna be. And when when uh when I get to heaven, I want the best. I don't want to just be okay, now you're you're fixed up pretty good. Don't screw it up. You know, again. <laughs> right. And uh and I think actually JP's um JP's, you know, kind of grotesque, unseemly illustration, uh, it, it seems to support my view a little bit more, because he will not do what he suggested, though in a sense he's physical possible, because he has no desire to do this, no intention to do this, nothing in him desires that. And to me, that is the status of moral perfection. God can do whatever he wants— but everything he wants is going to be good because of his nature. And I think we will be in the same circumstance because we'll be like Jesus. We can do whatever we want, but everything we want is going to be good. Our natures are going to be changed. And I mean, that's my conviction and my reason. I could be mistaken about this. I think we all agree there's not going to be any sin in heaven, but... uh, uh, and whether that's a result of communicable property or some other miracle that God does in us, the the nature of glorification, it doesn't matter to me, as long as we don't do it. <laughs> Nobody does right. it, which seems to be the case. I mean, this is the description of heaven moving into eternity, which actually is a misnomer, because nobody lives an eternity. We just live forever and ever. <laughs> We'll always have an age. Hey, that's another issue. So going back to the angel thing, the angel kind of works against both positions. It's against the what I call the inoculation view of, of Jones, in the sense that if angels saw rebellion, and yet more angels still rebelled after that, then what's to say that we, even after having experienced sin, wouldn't choose the same? Yeah. But then it works against the... Uh, you know, God communicating His His nature to us in the sense that if it's necessary for us to have His moral perfection to stop sinning, it's like then how could it not be necessary for the angels to experience the exact same thing? Yeah, see, yet I... we're not told that yet we're not told that angels will be glorified unless you just say, well, we're not told much about angels at all. So it could be the case that God will glorify them, even though Scripture is silent on the issue. Yeah, but the second concern that you raise I don't think is a problem for me, because uh, I'm not making the claim that angels could never sin, and if even, you know, have multiple rebellions. I, I don't know, is the, if, the, if are you convinced that it—I'm not debating you now, but are you convinced the textual evidence for multiple rebellions is pretty good from your reading of Heiser? Um. It's a mix of textual, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think it's probably likely that it wasn't all at once. Okay. There was different beings re- rebelling at different times. So okay, yeah, got it. it. Okay, fine. But nevertheless, you still have, you still have in these multiple rebellions, yet there is no claim that angels 
are somehow uh, given the quality of moral perfection. It just, all we know is a lot of them stayed good. But we don't know that they stayed good in virtue of moral perfection, and we don't know they're going to stay good in the future in virtue of moral perfection. Um, now, it does seem that once this age is done, that the possibility of any rebellion of any sort is going to be gone. It's not going to happen. And this is like, I mean, you have this sense of finality there in Revelation 20, and the beast, and the, and the, the man of perdition, and, uh, and the devil, and everybody whose name was not written in the book of life, they were all once and for all thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, and then we move in to 21 and 22 in this characterization of the new heavens and the new earth, and, and uh, even with all the obviously metaphoric characterizations there, it's really clear there is no darkness. All the foul things are outside the gate, right? So inside this kingdom where God is, there, there's, there's near, all that bad stuff from the past is gone. Now the question then could be asked, well then how is the how are the angelic beings preserved if what their last state didn't serve them uh didn't result in them being unable to rebel how is it this future state is and i to me that's a good place to say well probably because they are then also transformed into with with moral perfection as a communicable property just like humans are and that secures the whole thing so right. But it, that's speculation with regards to the angels. Right. We don't yeah, know their status yeah, even now with regards right, yeah. to that. We have very little knowledge about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. All but, right, well, I, I know just in light of time, I don't rush you, but I know that last question about if God did create, or if he can communicate to us that divine property of moral perfection. Oh, why didn't future, he do that in the beginning? Why? Okay. Yeah, why why create us with just moral innocence no, when he right. could have done so with moral perfection? Yeah. This is where I think the inoculation view has the upper hand because it's basically well, God couldn't have created us that way from the beginning. With the you know, the, we're ensuring we couldn't sin because we first had to have the experience of it and learn how bad it is, so that we then, in the future, when our sinful inclinations are removed from us, then we will always and only choose the good. Sure. But, the, so that's an outworking of a certain kind of theodicy, right? Of, of why right. would God allow evil, okay? And I think there is something there, but I, 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 don't, I don't land in the same spot, because we do have to answer that question. It comes up all the time. Well, if God could have made us the way we'll be in heaven, according to my view, then why didn't he do it in the beginning? And this is where I'm just going to leverage some things that I learned from JP, all right? And what, what, um, what JP says is that this this life is where we uh, where God is preparing us to be fit to spend eternity with Him? Now that's he you know he didn't cash that out, but I thought it was a clever way of putting it because there are texts that indicate that what we do on this on in this life has a has a an impact or is determinative of something about let's just call it the quality of existence that we experience after the resurrection. And there are a few—I can think of two texts right off the top of my head that indicate this. One is in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, where all these people who are saved from hardship and, and difficulty and harm and all this, 
by faith. So here's all this victory by faith. But then there's a lot of defeat that is endured by faith. That's the famous and others twist that you get halfway through. And others didn't fare so well, you know. And the reason it says is that so that they might uh, secure a better resurrection. A better resurrection. Wow. How can you have a better resurrection? Well, some people are resurrected in a form that is better than others. <laughs> That's what it seems to mean on face value. Now, you've got another passage in First Timothy that says, we were just talking about this as a team today, or maybe even I were talking about it, um, and it says, Paul says, physical exercise profits little. Okay, there's some profit of pump and iron, right? But it, in the big picture, it's minor because it's limited to this life. Then he says, godliness is a means of great gain, not only for this life, like pump and iron, but also for the life to come. So there is something going on here that is a is a place. This this life is a place where we are schooled for. We'll just call it eternity, even though we don't live. And eternity, just forever and ever. So you get my point. So right. we're schooled for that. And that means just as there are greater sins and more punishment for different people in hell, that's clear from Jesus' comments, there are also different qualities of experience and existence in eternity, in, in heaven, based on what happens here. So what I've argued in—but and this is all somewhat speculative, and that's the way theodicies are. Theodicies being, for those who don't know, um, characterizations of why God would have allowed evil. Well, why would He allow evil in the world? What would be a good reason? Well, there's a number of possibilities, and some of them overlap. And and what I'm mention, offering now is what's called a soul-making theodicy. In other words, God is using— evil in our lives to accomplish things that in our souls could not be accomplished if we didn't live in a fallen world. So how, how are you going to develop the quality of long-suffering if there's no suffering? Or the quality of forgiving those who offend you if there's nothing to forgive because the world's not fallen? Just to give two examples. So this world then—and by the way, I've been influenced by JP on this thinking, and it really has— had a profound impact on the way I look at um, my, my, I guess, my sanctification, for lack of a better word. I, I don't like using that word. That's a biblical word. I just, I think it's one of those worn-out Christian words, and it ceases to communicate. But I think what God is doing is He's working us out here with all these things. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal way to glory. Second Corinthians four there, and so Paul, that verb is really important. It's the it's the difficulties that are resulting in no difficulties, no result is the idea there. And so um, you know, I, I think that God has He wants to make us more like Him in experience, and that takes a fallen world. It also takes a fallen world for God to be able to express His uh, glorious. Um, quality of justice and wrath against evil. Okay, so I don't say that's the only factor, and that makes some people sit up and go, wait a minute, that sounds weird. <laughs> no, wait, God's just, hell is a good place. What? Well, did God make it? Yes. Does God make bad things or good things? 
Everything God made is good. It's a good place because a good thing gets done there. It is not a fun place. It is not subjectively pleasant for those who go there, but it accomplishes a good purpose. Okay? And so God's goodness is manifest in His judgment of evil. And that wouldn't be the case if there was no evil. There would be no one to see. Uh, that We would not be able to behold that aspect of God's character, because there would not have been any evil for that aspect of his character to be to be manifest against to deal with anyway so those are some ideas and i'm i'm not roosting on any of them i have written on some but they're all but they are conjecture and you know we just have to be careful because we're not sure but here's some thoughts here's some ways that it might have worked out that kind of thing yeah so there you have it Lots to think about. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, Jason. Good talking to you, and I'm I'm glad you brought this up. We've talked uh, like three quarters of the show already, and it was fun. (laughs) All right, buddy. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Take care. Goodbye. Bye bye. All right. Let's take a break, and then we'll do an open mic call about the book of Proverbs and some things in there that have to do with arguing for your points. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org slash outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Hi, friends. Uh, we're going to, um, let's see, where is that? I want to deal with this question here, open my question uh, on, oh, uh, goodness, here I am with paper. You're going to have to find it on uh, the 
not arguing. <laughs> and it's in and it's in Proverbs. And I just had all of them sitting here in front of me because I looked up all the Proverbs. Mark, what page? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Oh, that's why. Okay, there we go. Oh, okay, good. So yeah, cue up Mark Johnson in a minute. Get ready for that, Mr. Beast. And uh, But I wanted to say something about our prior conversation because <clears throat> I thought of it, but I, I didn't recall it in time to say it in the last segment, and now it's come back. And that is on the view that we are still capable of sinning, but we are not going to sin. That um, is a view that establishes our sinlessness in heaven as an accidental property. In other words, it just so happens that we're not going to do that. And there might be a way, in a certain sense, to secure that, because we really won't want to, or because we we saw how bad, whatever it is. But it's going to be an accidental property. It's not going to be built into our new natures. But if God shares His attribute of holiness with us, if He communicates that to us, so that we experience, we, 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 we have His moral perfection, not just as a property, but as part of our being, that sounds better to me. <laughs> I don't know how to put it. <laughs> of course, we talked about that, too. That's, that sounds better. It's me that's rescued com- so completely that it, I, it's just not accidentally there. Like, I just hap- it'll just happen to be that we never do that, maybe for some good reason, but, because, uh, but, but rather because now we are completely different in that regard. All right? I want to be better than Adam. A whole lot. All right, let's uh, hear what Mark uh, Johnson has to say here about uh, Proverbs. Hey, good morning, Greg. Uh, my question is in um, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 3, um, also Proverbs 19, 11, 17, 14, and 15, 18. Uh, talks about not having strife, don't create arguing, but as an apologist, um, we're suppo- we do set forth arguments, and I run into uh, Christians that, well, I mean, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, but I run into other Christians that are kind of anti-apologetic, mm-hmm. and um, they, they, uh, they say we're not supposed to argue, or mm. they're... They really push back. Can you give me some biblical uh, explanations, some defense that I can um, talk with other people about when that subject comes up? I appreciate it. My name's Mark, and uh, I live in the middle of Ohio, and I'm a fisherman. (laughs) Wow. Have a good day. There you go, Mark. Well, maybe we'll stretch a line sometime. I'm not sure. And Ohio's got some good fishing, too. Um, what's very interesting to me is that you have friends from whom, as you put it, you've received some pretty aggressive pushback on the issue of having arguments with other people like we do when we're making our case. 
And you have a string of verses here from Proverbs, which I suspect some of those you got from the people who pushed back. So what exactly was going on there? Here were these people who were, after a fashion, arguing with you and giving reasons for their view why arguing is not a good idea. Notice you can't avoid this, all right? And you can't avoid it because it's a, it's a feature of our mental life that is important to finding out what the truth is. Now, I understand that the word argue can have different senses. A person writes a book and advances an argument, all right? If, if, if all, men are, <laughs> all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. There's an argument. Or there might be an argument pertaining to an ethical issue or some theological issue or whatever. Um, the difficulty with claiming, for example, from Proverbs, and we'll read those in just a moment, or from any other text, that arguing as a blanket statement is wrong is that all of the biblical writers did it, including Jesus. All the biblical individuals Jesus didn't write. But they all did it. They all argued in a certain fashion. And sometimes those arguments were intense. Sometimes they were heated. Think of Paul in Galatians what chapter 2, and he goes after Peter for good reason, quite aggressively. Jesus, in many occasions, um, confronted the religious leaders in aggressive, in an aggressive fashion. And he did a lot of it with questions so he could trick them. Not trick them in a bad way, but trick them in a right way. Have them fall into their own pit, so to speak. When you read in the book of uh, Acts, say 16, 17, 18, you'll see a number of references to Paul arguing with people. And then it says, and some were persuaded. So if we have a if we have friends that are just saying arguing is wrong and are not careful to clarify, then the question I'm going to ask is, if it's wrong, then why did Jesus do it? And all of those people who he trained to follow after him, why did they do it too? Well, they did it because it wasn't wrong. Now, there are wrong ways to engage in controversial issues. And at Standard Reason, characteristically, we are trying to teach you those proper ways as a good ambassador to argue for the truth. And in fact, if you are not allowed to argue for the truth, then you're not going to be able to find what the truth is or defend the truth against lies. Now, in Chapter 2 of Tactics, I go into some detail on this. And people say, well, you can't argue people into the kingdom. Yes, you can. It happens all the time. J. Warner Wallace, just off the top of my head. Lee Strobel, just off the top of my head, names familiar to all of you. They were argued into the kingdom. It were the facts of the matter that persuaded them, or maybe to be more theologically precise, it was the, the facts of the matter that the Holy Spirit used to persuade them that Christianity was true. All right. So there's nothing wrong with those with with having an argument if what you mean by an argument is a is a um is a point of view that is defended by reasons. And that by the way is what an argument is. It's not just a point of view. 
That's an assertion. If you make assertion and give the reasons why you think the assertion is true, now you have an argument. Now, it doesn't mean your your assertion is, is true. Then you have to look at see how the argument plays itself out, and if it works, if the argument goes through, so to speak. But it's going to be based on reasons. Now, that process can be done in a um, genial fashion or in an extremely hostile fashion, okay? And it is the hostile thing that's the problem. When Peter says to defend the faith in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, always be ready to give an answer for everyone who asks you to make a defense for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Notice the (laughs) verse doesn't stop there yet with gentleness and reverence. So, make the case, make the point, give the reasons, but be careful how you do with that. And it's it's in lots of places. First, uh, first make that 2 Timothy chapter 2, last verse of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to this. Actually, it's the last three verses. The Lord's bondservant must not Now, it doesn't say argue. It says, must not be quarrelsome. You know, there's a difference between making a case and quarreling. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And then adds, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So we are trusting in God to make a difference, but we are careful in how we present it, all right? So the uh, the concern that ti- that Paul is raising with Timothy is not engagement, but how we engage, not being quarrelsome. And actually, when you go back to those other texts that Mark mentioned— in the book of Proverbs, this is precisely what we find. Now, he might have mentioned this when we were talking, but let me just read it again. Proverbs 20, verse 3, that's his first one. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Notice what's being abraded there is quarreling that creates strife. It is not arguing per se. And keep in mind, now I'm using the argument the word argue not in a not as a synonym for quarreling creating strife but case making which is the issue with apologetics we're making a case we're making an argument but we're not quarreling or we want to avoid that because that just causes strife all right what was the next verse that he raised okay that was look it up here proverbs 19:11 just the page before what does that say <clears throat> a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Now, I know this passage because <laughs> I've decided it for myself a number of times, and plus I offered it to my eldest daughter when she was younger, having a fight with her sister. But, 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 I'm right, she's wrong. Well, it might be that she was wrong, and you're right, but... A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and, by the way, it is his glory to overlook 
a transgression. So there's a there's certainly a message there. There's counsel that's being given. We learn. It, it's a good thing for us to say, never mind. Let it go. Refuse to be offended. We're just going to overlook it, okay? Rather than always pursuing every slight against us. But notice that this has nothing to do with arguing in the sense we're discussing. So neither of these two verses here so far apply to the issue that we're talking about. All right, so let's try another one. Proverbs 17, 14. And here's what it says. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Now, I have a suspicion about about this passage, okay? You realize, of course, that sometimes the biblical writers speak in, in very earthy terms, and sometimes they're sanitized in the translation. But, uh, you know, Paul says to the Galatians, you know, if you want to impress people by getting circumcised— as an evidence of your righteousness, why don't you just go all the way and cut it all off? Now, the way the translation is, is you mutilate yourself. Okay. But he's—so that's a bit coarse, but he's making a point. Something like that, I think, is going on in here. The beginning of strife is like the letting out—is like letting out water. What, what's letting out water? Well, letting out water is going to the bathroom, number one, to put it simply. So if you start going number one— you know, it's kind of hard to stop. you got to finish it out, right? That's just the way it works. Pardon me, but I'm just reading the Scripture. I think that's what he's referring to. And he's using that as a, as a, as a lesson. Just like that's hard to stop, so are arguments. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Now, notice here we have the same language as in the first verse, Proverbs 20, verse 3. He is talking about strife and quarreling. He is not talking about case-making. So this passage doesn't disqualify Christian case-making either. What about the final one? Well, that's in um, Proverbs 15, verse 18. And here's what that verse says. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Now, incidentally, all these verses that I've cited here in Proverbs, I either have them underlined in pencil, or highlighted in yellow. (laughs) Why? Because these are to instruct me. But these have nothing to do implicitly with case-making. It may have to do with case-making if it turns out you're bringing something else to the table other than your argument. If you're bringing a bad attitude, if you're bringing nastiness, if you're you're bringing a hot temper— if you are stirring up strife in the way that you're comporting yourself, if you're being divisive in the way that you're comporting yourself, if you're quarreling, which is a way of comporting yourself, that's not right, and it's stupid. <laughs> By the way, the smart and stupid, those, these are the categories in Proverbs. It's not so much right and wrong. It's smart and stupid. And so the writer of Proverbs is saying, oh, well, you look at it. It's dumb. You're a hot-tempered guy, you're going to stir up strife, all right? If you are slow to anger, you're going to calm a dispute. Let's be smart when we're trying to make our points. Don't 
let strife get out of control. It's hard to stop. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Across the page here, I just got another view. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. All right, so that ties in. We don't want to quarrel, but we want to be persuasive, so be careful how you talk so that your speech improves the capability of someone being persuaded by your ideas. Uh, Proverbs is filled with stuff that's really good. So much of it has to do with the tongue and the way we talk and engage, and since that's a big part of what we teach about here, and I do in my life, this is why I have a lot of these places underlined, because I need this help. But the Bible does not teach we should not argue. Make the case. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. And we ought to do it, but we ought to do it properly. And this is where Proverbs will help us. All right, friends, thank you for spending some time with me today. Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.